The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Jill Gonzalez, consumer finance expert. Uh, she and I are going to be talking today about the 2018, 2018's most and least diverse states in America. With the leadership in Fortune 500 companies still dominated by Caucasian males, the personal finance website WalletHub conducted an in-depth study of 2018's most and least diverse states in America, as well as with accompanying videos. To determine where the most idea and identity exchanges have occurred at the highest level in the United States, and where the population is relatively more homogeneous, WalletHub compared the 50 states across six key categories, socioeconomic, cultural, economic, household, religious, and political diversity. Jill Gonzalez is the media director at WalletHub and is featured on NBC Nightly News, NPR's Marketplace, and C-SPAN. Welcome to the show, Jill. Thanks for having me back. Well, it's great to have you back. Uh, we've got a new topic, diversity. Uh, first question, and I think maybe I always ask you this question no matter what the study is, but uh, why conduct this study? Why study diversity here in the United States? And how are we going to use the, the research that uh, came out of this study? What do we do with it? Yeah, well, as you just mentioned, I mean, states that have a higher rate of diversity tend to do better economically, more of an exchange of ideas, more businesses, more jobs. We see that uh, state number one here is California. that has the fifth largest GDP in the world. So a lot of these things obviously all come together, usually for the good. Places that did best here were California, Texas, Hawaii, less diverse states, uh, Vermont, Maine, West Virginia, so all over the place here, we are hoping that states look at this to see what other states are doing to promote diversity, what they're getting back from that, et cetera. So seeing what the leaders are doing and seeing what can be done elsewhere. Well, Jill, diversity can mean a lot of different things as well, right? Diverse how, in what areas, and you studied you know, different areas. Um, so when we're talking about diversity, what kinds of, I mean, there's ethnic diversity, as we say, socioeconomic, cultural, religious, the ones I mentioned in the intro. So they're going to have a different impact, uh, I, I assume, on the, on the economics of the state as well as in public policy uh, and all kinds of issues. So maybe we should, and before you answer that, were there any major surprises? Because when I looked at the list, I wasn't really surprised. Um, I, I don't think there were any, to, to me, that, that's what I, diverse states in America and the least diverse states, they said, oh, okay, that, that makes sense. But now we have to really break it down. What are we talking about? What kind of diversity? And what's the impact? As far as the diversity, I think most people, when they think of diversity, they think of cultural diversity, which is one thing that we certainly included, but we wanted to go a little bit further than that. So not just racial and ethnic diversity, linguistics, birthplace. 
We also looked at socioeconomics here, household income diversity, educational attainment differences. We looked at the economy overall, so what types of industry diversity there are. We know just from the recession that's very important. We don't want to put all of our eggs in one basket economically because there are cities that are still reeling and recovering just from kind of doing one thing. So we look at that as well, household diversity, marital status, generational diversity, what does that look like, and then religious and political as well. So the states that did best here have a mix throughout all six of those categories. So you're talking about there's a relationship between diversity and economic growth. In, in in different in different cities actually in these uh, in these states what a, in, uh, and as I'm thinking about it and as probably people are is are listening thinking well diversity hey that's a po- that's a plus that's a positive thing yes uh, promotes economic growth amongst other things but what are some of the are there cons I mean are there also cons uh, of let's say the what you mentioned some of the pros but what are some of the cons of say living in a diverse city well I think I think in the beginning, I think when there is more diversification, obviously that's hard for any type of situation. Uh, I think that moving toward growing diversity is usually always a sign of increased good things for your economy. But when we're seeing different uh, people of all different backgrounds come in, especially when we're seeing people of different household income diversities move in. This is where gentrification comes into play. We see others being moved out. So that's the only reason, and and this goes for any really rapidly growing city. That's one thing that we need to keep an eye on. We need to make sure that people originally from wherever we're talking about, be it at the state or city level, are still able to survive and thrive where they have been. So diversity has a real impact on any city or in any state in, in what you live. And politicians, I guess, particularly, as I would understand it, is they have to really be aware of what what's the makeup of the diverse community in their city and their state and how that impacts the choices or the decisions that are made politically. Maybe we can give some examples. Uh, you know, you have an influx of immigrants in your city or you have a higher, you know, there's more single-parent homes in your city or your state. And so you have single moms or single dads raising kids. I mean, there are all different kinds of sort of combinations, right, which would impact public policy uh, and would affect the way one um, actually implements these decisions or these choices made by politicians and us as the general public. Exactly. So, you know, especially when we're talking about things like generational diversity, Obviously, if you have more millennials or post-millennials living in your city, living in your neighborhood, your policy moves are going to be different than if you have a mostly baby boomer. So what's going on in Florida, although it's a very diverse state, might not be the same policy that's being pushed in California, right? Uh, So that's one other thing to really keep an eye out on. Education might not be top of mind for an older community, whereas healthcare very much may be. So those types of things, you know, obviously, especially when you're moving around, when you're moving to a new location, knowing what the makeup is is going to really help you decide, this is probably a good fit for me, or you know, this is some of the policy that I would like to be seeing just for my family. Is that not going to happen here? Is that not going to be prioritized? 
So you're exactly right. I mean, this is definitely dependent, or I guess codependent, really. It's a double-edged sword here in terms of what's going to be getting done politically. So this is really an important study, not just for politicians and decision makers, but as you're saying, like just as individuals. And since we as Americans seem to we're, get around, we move uh, frequently from job to job. We move from state to state, city to city. So we really should have this information available to us. I mean, case in point, I had a friend who moved to Florida, and I don't think she really studied it in terms of, who lives there and what the population is. And I, there are a lot of, uh, I think Florida has the most senior citizens than any other state. Um, it's diverse, I guess, in lots of maybe more ethnically, but not necessarily uh, age-wise. And uh, that was kind of a surprise to her because uh, the, the city she moved to uh, really catered more to that demographic rather than who she is. And... Um, I mean, that's one example. Yeah, absolutely. And we do this on a state level. You know, we said that California is the most diverse. Uh, Texas is up there. Florida is up there as well. And that's good to know, you know, when you're looking at this on a state level. But then you really have to do your research, look at your city, look at your neighborhoods. I mean, there are certainly neighborhoods in California, in Florida, that look exactly the same, where you don't see much diversity at all. And somewhere, that's just not the case. So this is good to know, you know, when you're doing your research. And we are a consumer-facing website, so we're doing this more for consumers, for individuals, for them to take to their local governments if they wish. But this is definitely for them, people moving around, people looking at their next move, more so than local authorities. But, you know, that being said, it's, it's to take it up to them as well. But, yeah, I mean, that's hopefully what we're thinking people will do with this information, especially if they're somewhere where they know their local economy is struggling and diversity initiatives are maybe something that need to be pushed more. Does this, Jill, connect in any way to red state, blue state? Is there any connection here? Can we make any kinds of connections um, in terms of diversity in a red state and diversity or, or a state that's not so diverse in a blue state? Or is there no connection? I would say there might be a slight connection. I'd say there are more, uh, slightly more blue states up in the top ten here, but you have California as number one, then Texas as number two. So I don't think it necessarily is divided between party lines as much as it is, you know, especially having to do with regionality. We have some super northeastern states like Vermont and Maine in the bottom. Also, you know, some very blue states in there as well. Uh, a lot of more maybe Bible Belt or Midwestern states kind of in the middle of the country, states that are on the coast, obviously, I think it's easier for people from other places to simply get there. So that helps. Yeah. Uh, you talk about Vermont and Maine. I'm originally from Maine, now living in New York City, but uh, I looked actually at Vermont and I thought, well, Vermont is probably one of the most liberal states, blue states, and yet here we are. It's a state that's the least diverse um, which I wonder, which kind of goes against, and there's nothing really uh, scientific about it, but just in, in terms maybe of attitude, I, I wouldn't have thought that. Um, it seems like it maybe it wouldn't go together. You know, you have a state that's just very one-sided in terms of the people who live there, and yet it's a very liberal state. Yeah, I mean, that, that whole little pocket actually is in this less diverse category, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine. 
So I think it's a couple of different things. First of all, we do have, I will say, some colder states toward the bottom here, I think, that are just attracting less people uh, from not even out of country, but really out of state to begin with. So I think that's one other thing we look at. I mean, it's not just people coming from entirely other countries. When we look at birthplace diversity, we look at in the state of residence, which is the case in many of those states, and then just people coming from other regions within the U.S. What about, I want to talk, maybe break down these these categories, these six categories that I mentioned earlier. We have been talking about them. Um, let, let's maybe look at specifically cultural differences. Uh, let's take some of these states and maybe even break it down in some of the cities. The most diverse cities and or states uh, in relation for culture, when we're talking about cultural differences, just specifically, sure. Cultural. So this was state level, so we'll stick with that. But I mean, as far as racial and ethnic diversity, we saw that Hawaii had the most, followed by California, Texas, Nevada, and Maryland. So again, a little bit all over the place here. Uh, the least: Montana, New Hampshire, West Virginia, Vermont, and Maine. So more homogeneous there, which I don't think. Is too much of a surprise. Same goes for linguistics. Most of that follows the same type of pattern. And then once we look at birthplace diversity, all this kind of fits within culture. Um, that's where things change up slightly. In terms of birthplace diversity, places like Nevada, Florida, Arizona, all in the top three. So I think border states certainly have a, a bigger part here. Least birthplace diversity, so a lot of these places... You're born there and you stay there. Places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, a lot of places along the Rust Belt. Yeah. And why do you think that is? I think that there's less movement, first of all, when you're in the middle of the country. So I think that has a little bit more to do with it. Um, and when you're, because when you are there, again, when you're not in Nevada or a Florida or an Arizona, it's simply harder to get to. A lot of these people are coming over, starting family businesses, and then, you know, people might be coming over within the family, and that's where they're staying put. You know, a lot of these border states or coastal states where just due to its location is easier to get to. So I think that's part of it. These places are flourishing economically. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, all still struggling from the recession. So it, I think it's attracting less businesses, less job opportunity to begin with, whether you're coming from another country or not. And wouldn't you say if you are, I'm saying stuck, I don't know if we have to use the word stuck necessarily, but if you are in those states that you've been talking about, uh, perhaps you have less of a world view because if you've been born and raised in these states and you stay there and you haven't had the opportunity to perhaps move to, live in, travel to other states, your worldview is very different um, maybe more provincial uh, than, say, people who come from other states where there's where they have traveled to or they weren't born there, um, and that would have, I think, an impact on the way you live your life, the you know your political attitudes, all of those kinds of things. Absolutely. So that's you know one reason why we did this study in the first place. You know to see if there was any correlation between that. Uh, and I think that's what we'll continue to see. I mean, talk about a world view. 
the Census Bureau now predicts that by 2044, the U.S. will no longer have a single ethnic majority. So currently that majority is non-Hispanic whites. That's going to grow increasingly more diverse in the years to come. So we're going to see that across the country. I don't think we might not even be able to make one of these breakdowns in the future because there simply will be diversity will be the norm. Uh, what do you think that says for the country? Is that I mean, I, I, I'm thinking about when you as you're describing that, I'm thinking more and more people marry or partner with people outside their ethnic group. Is that what you're talking about? Or religious uh Definitely. Uh, intermar- I, I don't even know. It's kind of an old-fashioned term, you know, intermarriages. Uh, but that all of that um, will make us a more homogenetic society, I guess. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, less of that. So we're saying, you know, because of that, because the ideas around things like that are different now, because people are marrying not only, you know, outside religion, outside of their ethnicity, outside their uh, political ideas. You know, it really is, we're just talking here about ethnicity, but I really do think it's going to span all of these different types of diversities that we're talking about. And the one thing that I think is not really flowing with that is when we're looking at household income. That is still widening. So I think that's interesting that, you know, we're, we're spanning the board in all of these other types of ways, and that's why we looked into things beyond just cultural diversity. But when it comes to income diversity, that's the one thing that is worsening. So you're talking about the income gap, which is really getting worse and worse um, in this country and probably in other Western European countries as well or in, in, in several of them, but look, we're talking about here, obviously. So what does that mean? So as, and, and that's been happening for quite a while, right? I mean, we've been talking about it for many years. The income gap is worsening. Now not only is it worsening, but everybody has the information, the transparency. They can see it. We can see it. You know, with the advent of the Internet, we, know, we can see it, we, the results of it. We see certain people live a certain way and other people don't live that way or don't have the opportunity to live that way. So that's a, a big difference as well. I mean, obviously your studies, but then also uh, when you can see, you see it on your, on your iPhone, on your iPad, you, can, you experience it, but then you also have a, a, a real understanding of what that means. So that's going to have a, a huge impact on our whole social network, social structure. Let's talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And it has to do with so many different things, whether it's household makeup, you know, are you raised in a single parent family? Are you raised in a family with no parents? Are you raised by your grandparents? Um, And that really does, that really differs on such a micro level. The Times actually just released data on how much upward mobility one one neighborhood has that might be separated by a street from another neighborhood. And Poor children living in one grow up to make $60,000 a year, and the other grow up to make $12,000 a year, separated by a street. So because we have this data now, we can see what other factors make up these different types of diversities. And hopefully, because we have that information, we can do things to improve upon that. 
But are we but doing the that? Problem. The poor are getting poorer and the rich are getting richer. Isn't that it? Isn't that what's actually happening? How do we, how, how, what do we do to impact that in a positive way? And, uh, so that exactly. we have more equality. Yeah. Yeah, we, we see the diversity among us. We know, you know, by a certain time period, uh, we're not going to be seeing such rigid lines in terms of what we all look like. And yet, when we look to the top, we only see 24 women out of 500 that are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. We only see around 18% of these senior executives uh, that are non-white. So that's the difference here. We see the diversity around us when we're walking around, but when we're looking to leadership, we don't. And that's the problem here. And, you know, what do we do about that? We've seen companies take on their own initiatives, so kind of working from the bottom up. We've seen entire states like California within the last week look into board of directors that have female counterparts. Uh, that is going from the top down. So there's definitely not one answer, but there are several answers that hopefully we see a change either trickle down or reach to the top. Well, is it California where they're requiring that that, uh, a corporate board, they have to have a female? The corporate boards have to have at least one female on on their board? I think that California acquired something with the board of directors having at least a female. I don't think it's a requirement for every company there. Well, let's turn to politics. Okay, that's that's uh, that's CEOs of, of uh, companies. But so we have this diverse communi- community in the United States, in our states, and yet the people, all we have to do is look at Congress uh, and are, we're really not represented. If we have all these old white men, <laughs> and um, who are in the Senate, <clears throat> who are the ones who are making decisions for us as a community, what does that say? I mean, there's a, uh, you know, like given your study about um, diversity and then comparing that with our political leaders, it doesn't gel, does it? Yeah, I would say it's the, it's the same argument there. Whether we're looking for different genders, whether we're looking for different ethnicities, different backgrounds, it's the same thing. And we have seen an uptick in the last couple of years of different people at least running now. So that's the first step, you know, is getting out there to run, uh, whether they were unmotivated to run before, whether they didn't feel the confidence that they would get elected. So that's one thing. Just more people of different backgrounds running. So that we have seen an uptick, and we have seen an uptick in them winning too. So it's definitely a step in the right direction. But how long will it be until we actually can look to Congress and see the change? I think we still have, you know, a few or far from a few years ahead of that. Yeah, I think that's evolving. Hopefully, you know, it, it, right? It's an it's an evolution. It, it's not a revolution, and it will take time, right? It will take years. What, what do you think the impact of the Me Too movement is on all of this? I think that that brought a lot of light to specific industries. I think, obviously, within Hollywood, that certainly was uh, the launch pad. I think what we're seeing this very week in what's folding out in Congress 
uh, in, pol- in the political sphere. Obviously, that's brought an entire new movement there. Uh, there's actually been policy change into victims of sexual assault, sexual harassment within Congress, and the actual process for that. Has it been implemented yet? No. But there has been at least change in terms of the process that will be happening there. So I think in a lot of ways that is helpful. Um, I think there's also a sense of becoming jaded, you know, almost a year out from this, from where this started. And that could be hurtful to the movement overall. So it's another difficult thing to handle and something that needs to be handled very delicately moving on. I don't know how much um, more gas the movement has. So hopefully, you know, that's something that we see that's brought on policy change, but I think we're going to have to work that into a general mindset for going on forward. Well, given what we I think it also, uh, the movement, really, it's in its infancy, I would say it hasn't been very long. So that, too, has to evolve. Um, and it's not really even an organization. Um, it's a movement. So perhaps the movement evolves into an organization. Who knows? Uh, but, yes, it's an evol- But one thing you just said, and we only have a couple minutes left, uh, jaded. How, g- give us a couple examples of how the movement, the Me Too movement, could become jaded well, I think even what we're seeing now uh, with the nomination of the next uh, Supreme Court justice, I think that when we're seeing certain councils brought in and uh, I'm wondering if this is divided between party lines or between what is right and wrong, I think this is where this issue really starts to kind of bleed into one another when we're looking at politics, when we're looking uh, at gender issues, when we're looking at just moral beliefs. I think that's where people are kind of throwing around the term Me Too, and, you know, both sides are becoming confused by it or, or simply jaded by it. So I think that we might see this more in the future. I think we've already seen it since the movement started. Um, but in terms of diversity, you know, that's one piece of the puzzle. We're not only looking at things that have to do with gender, but things that have to do with ethnicity, backgrounds, uh, economic status. So I wonder if we'll see a movement for each one of these things or if we can kind of make one that says, you know, diversity of all kinds should be accepted and should be promoted. A good note to uh, say goodbye on. Always a pleasure to talk to you and to get uh, your take on all of this. And this research is very important. This is, uh, we've been talking to Jill Gonzalez. She's the media director at Wallet Hub. And uh, the, a, she's a consumer finance expert. And we've been talking about uh, 2018's most and least diverse states in America. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Anytime. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Janae Pellet, former attorney and now sex and intimacy coach and author of Living an Orgasmic Life, Healing Yourself and Awaken, and Awaken Your Pleasure. Janae, who lived in a sexless marriage for decades, is passionate about helping individuals who are struggling with their sexuality and feel broken, reclaim their sexuality and their pleasure, transform their lives, and understand that help is available. Her book is for the 20-year-old who was date-raped, the 30-year-old mom who was traumatized during childbirth, the 40-year-old divorced woman who has never experienced an orgasm, the 50-year-old who is struggling with menopause and low libido, and the 60-plus-year-old woman who is ready to explore her sexuality and experience orgasmic bliss. Janae is featured in She Knows, Brides, and Cosmopolitan Magazine. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here. Thank you, Catherine. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have you here, particularly, as we said right before we went on the air, at this particular time, um, your topic, your book, our discussion is very timely. Uh, of course, as we said, sex is always a topic that one should be discussing. Um, but in saying that, I guess my first question is, why is it so hard to talk about sex uh, when we obviously yeah. live in a society where everything is about sex? Um yeah, that's such a that's such a great question. You know, I think Catherine that we um, we just have this like dichotomy that it's going on in society where like you're right, everything is about sex, 
and yet it's still really challenging for people to talk about it. Uh, and it, you know, I believe that it really stems from the way in which we've been socialized as women and as men around sexuality and what we can and can't say um, and messages that we got from parents. So, for example, like if you grew up in a household like I did where there was no talk about sex whatsoever, you got the feeling like there was something wrong with it, right? There was something not okay. It's like the taboo subject. And many of us have had those experiences of either we, there was never a talk about sex or even, you know, even more challenging, like sex was a bad thing to talk about. Like your, you know, your parents covered your hand, uh, covered your eyes when there was a sexy scene in a movie. Um, we look at the way our parents modeled healthy sexuality or not. Right? Did, did you see them holding hands, kissing each other? And we get these messages that it's really not okay to talk about sex. And there's actually a lot of shame that most people have, like the shame and discomfort around our sexuality, which has just been generation after generation after generation, you know, sent down our line. And that's just really, I think, the reality that most people have. There's this, it is just, a very taboo subject, and we have a lot of shame, and shame is so hard to deal with that we can't even admit that we have shame around Are we our just, shame, right? I'm going to interrupt you, but Jenna, do you think that maybe we're just hypocrites? Because as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, and I'm older than you are, I happen to have grown up in a household where we did talk about sex. My father was an attorney, my mother was a social worker, and they had a great relationship, and they were always holding hands or... Uh, you, you could see the chemistry between them. So that wasn't my experience, but I think as a society, this whole issue of, and I'm using the word puritanical, that's where we come from, and it's only been a couple hundred mm -hmm. years, and uh, no matter really what religion one aspires to, or even if you're not religious, that kind of permeates our whole culture, um, which it doesn't, yeah. for instance, in, in Europe, uh, you don't see that kind of sort of, um, the kind of relationship that we as a culture have towards sex. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's no question that there is this puritanical um, conditioning that is very germane to American culture, but also to you know to the UK. There are certain countries. Um, in uh, in Europe and some of the Asian countries as well, yeah. um, and there are certain uh, countries and cultures, particularly some of the Latin American cultures, where sexuality and sensuality is much more um, open. There's a lot more appreciation for it. Um, it's there's less of a degradation, but more of like an appreciation for a beautiful woman walking down the street. Uh, so, yes, I do think that there is this, you know, there is the, the puritanical conditioning that um, is, is absolutely, you know, part of our culture. There's no question. And ancient cultures, like really ancient cultures, were very, very sex positive, right? Like the ancient Greeks were very sex positive. Um, uh, the ancient, some of the ancient Hindu cultures were very sex positive. They actually worshipped 
goddesses. They worship the sexuality in women. So it definitely is the, it's coming from the puritanical perspective. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. So given that climate, our climate, because this is where we live and work um, <laughs> and have our relationships, let's get down to the individuals and the personal. I mean, because obviously that is what your book is about. And we are in the midst of a cataclysmic sexual, I don't know what you would call it, uh, in this, you know, related to the issues uh, that are happening for our Supreme Court nominee. Uh, so, okay, what, and we're talking about, and with my last guest, we were talking about the Me Too movement. Um, how does this, I mean, we, I listed when I in, introduce you that there were a lot of reasons why women, specific in, well, very specific uh, incidents uh, or experiences that cause women to feel ashamed, not ex- want, terrified of uh, experiencing their sexuality, being orgasmic, all of those kinds of things. And you yourself lived in a sexless marriage. Maybe we should start with you because you, uh, how did that come about? You talked about being married for several years which and your marriage turned into a sexless marriage. How did that happen? <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, as with many other women that have these experiences, and of course it varies. For me, I had some issues around my own sexuality. Like, I had painful sex, also called vaginismus, um, which has also been in the news uh, recently, um, and, uh, and that causes the, the vaginal muscles to contract during penetration. And that actually happened for me from the very first time I had sex. But it actually started, you know, I realized that it actually started uh, from an experience that I had as a child. And again, a lot of these experiences around our sexuality, I call it a sexual blueprint, if you will. Uh, The way in which sex shows up for us as an adult starts as a child. Um, And so I had an experience that made sex for me or any type of touching of my vulva um, a lot of, caused a lot of anxiety. I had it, actually had an experience, and not an uncommon experience with my, with uh, a pet, a dog, who um, kind of licked me when I was like six or seven or eight, and I had a lot of anxiety around it with, combined with pleasure. But my body just kept holding on to the anxiety. So I had this sense, like I knew this was wrong somehow, right? I knew this was wrong, and if my mother caught me, it would be a major problem. But that experience translated into anything having to do with pleasure and touching of my vulva also causing anxiety, and anxiety causes the vagina to contract. Um, And so this is one of my, like, disconnections from my own body. And I think that happens with a lot of women. A variety of different things can happen from childhood experiences to having issues with their first um, menstruation cycles that it causes us to disconnect from our body and not really feel comfortable with our sexuality. And that was really one of the major issues for me sex was painful. And so there was nothing that any of my previous boyfriends or my husband did that was wrong. Like everybody tried to be great lovers and to please me, but I could not enjoy it. And I was terrified 
of penetration because it hurts so badly. It feels like a knife. Um, and that's not something that you really want to have very frequently. And so, you know, there were a lot of problems in my marriage around sex. That was just one of them, all coming and stemming from me. But I didn't really know that, and I didn't have the resources or the skills to understand what was going on. And so, you know, after our second child was born, and I was just 28 year, at, years old at that point, you know, we kind of stopped having sex. Because it was a drag and it was painful. And, um, and then, you know, what often happens when you stop having sex, you stop having intimacy, you stop cuddling, you stop kissing, and the relationship starts changing. And, and you know, we ended up ultimately sleeping in separate beds for 15 years. It's not like we didn't have a good marriage. The marriage was fine. We had a good family life. We were great parents. Um, But we really were not lovers. Uh, And that was You you can be great parents. And and I think sometimes people get uh, people are uh, sometimes I think they kind of get confused. You can be a really good parent, but not necessarily a good lover or a good intimate partner. Those are different relations. That's a different relationship. So I as it sounds like for those, what, 12 or 15 years, you're focusing on the family, the kids, and all the stuff that goes with that, but not on your sexuality. So at what point did you ever, I mean, former attorney, obviously intelligent, obviously aware, obviously you know that there's there's therapists out there, you see this stuff on television all the time or now on the net and stuff. Was there like this moment, like, maybe I, maybe it is, it is I, I should do something about this or what have I been doing or what have I not been doing? Um, as you say, it wasn't your husband or your boyfriends or any of your partners who were causing the, you know, painful sex, vaginismus, but it was something else. What was the yeah, I, point? Yeah, yeah, I mean, there was a moment, but, it, 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 you know, I think a lot of women don't get there because we feel so broken and you don't, you don't think that there's any help for it. Um, I was afraid to look for help. I don't think I was really interested in it, right? Because it was, it was so charged for me. But ultimately, I mean, the moment came when I knew we were ending our marriage or maybe even a couple of years before we were ending our marriage. And I knew that I wanted to have another relationship. I was young. (laughs) I was like in my forties. And I also knew like I had to address this. Like there was no possible way that I could have another relationship and just say to somebody, you know, I'm wonderful. I'm loving. I'm kind. I'm fun. I'm intelligent, but you can't have sex with me. Like that's not going to work. So there came a moment of awareness of, yes, this is something I need to work on. And there also came moments of like, you know, having had no libido whatsoever when I started to leave or think about leaving the relationship of all of a sudden, like this little, just this tiny little match started getting um, lit (laughs) in my body that said, oh, wait, maybe, yes, maybe, maybe, maybe there is still a little bit of a turn on for you. I mean, I didn't even have an orgasm really until I was in my, you know, mid forties and I bought a vibrator. Um, And, you know, that was like the beginning of the like awareness of like, okay, maybe, maybe there's something else going on. Maybe there's pleasure that you can actually access. So you took matters into your own hands, literally, and started from there, it sounds like, right? Um, yes, I, yeah, for sure. 
it's my, my next question is, I guess you talk about orgasms because I think that's something that, I mean, women tend, at least I, I'll, I'll, my, I guess women, my women friends who I am very close to talk about all different kinds of things, et cetera. But orgasms are one thing, you know, the title of your book, uh, Living an Orgasmic Life. Orgasms are something that women, I don't think, talk about too often. They'll talk about a lot of other stuff. They'll talk about intimate relationships, but they sort of don't get into, you know, are you orgasmic? How many orgasms do you have? Um, that's still sort of a taboo subject, uh, I think. Um, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, I, I think that um, some women talk a lot about their sex life and some don't. But, you know, maybe orgasms for women, there's a, I feel like there's a sense of um, that's a performance issue. That's, you know, like I can do it or I can't do it. Um, and there's either a concern about uh, if I can have an orgasm, maybe I don't want to boast about it. And if I can't have an orgasm, I'm ashamed about it, right? So I think that may be um, <clears throat> part of the issue. I think shame is still, like, underlying all of that, you know? <laughs> like, there's only so much I can talk about that I feel comfortable talking about with my girlfriends. And, and many women don't at all talk about it. You know, I have women who come in to see me and we have a conversation and they'll say to me, like, this is the first time I've ever talked to anybody about anything having to do with my sex life. Um, so, you know, not being able to talk about orgasms is, that doesn't surprise me. And then I think maybe a lot of women don't even understand their body and um, how, how, not how an orgasm happens, but the different types of orgasms that they are capable of achieving. So I see a lot of that also. Like I do a lot of education about women's anatomy and women's orgasms um, because many women don't really understand the variety that's available uh, and those who have a hard time achieving orgasm don't understand what's holding them back from having one. Well, women's bodies are more complex, I think, just physiologically than men. I mean, I think if you talk to a man, he knows where his orgasm comes from and how to achieve it. Totally. It's not a mystery. Um, or I haven't... My... Uh, men that I've... You know, as a social worker, let's start with that. You know, men that I've seen or talked to or counseled, they know uh, that and they expect to have an orgasm and they know where it comes from and they know how to do it. And women, mm -hmm. as you're describing, are exactly that way. Uh, also, there's a piece to it. That, do you think that some women feel they don't deserve it? That that's not, besides being maybe ashamed or feeling guilty, mm -hmm. they also feel, well, I don't, they, they don't have that sort of, they don't deserve an, or, an orgasm. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think what you're talking about is like there's a lot of women where they haven't been told that sex is for their pleasure, the sex is for their partner's pleasure. Right. So, you know, a, a good sex act is making sure that my, you know, partner gets off, but it's not about my own pleasure. And so, yes, I think that this is like one of those, another, somehow we've conditioned women to believe that sex isn't about them and sex isn't about their own pleasure. And obviously, 
that's not true, but it is, I think, one of the messages that many women have received, right? Sex is not for their own pleasure. Um, but, you know, I want women to know, right, that, yes, yeah, sex is for your pleasure, and you do deserve it. And that sometimes, Catherine, goes to just like a self-worth, right, or self-esteem wound that, you know, happens for women, not being able to ask for what we want, both in our sex life and also in life in general. So what are we supposed to tell our sons? I raised three sons. What are mothers, what kind of a dialogue should you have with your sons? Uh, Maybe it's more obvious the kind of dialogue you need to have with your daughters if you want your daughter to be able to be orgasmic, have a good sex life, feel confident, not feel ashamed, all of those kinds of things. Okay, fine, Mm -hmm. mother-daughter. But what do you tell your boys? Is it your, you know, your male partners or husband? Or is that the person who should be talking to the, we're talking about the next generations? Um, Or what? What do you do? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, boys need a lot of education about, what sex is really about because unfortunately what they think growing up is that it's all about, you know, what we see in, uh, on Pornhub, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is what, this is what young men are, are, are really feeling that sex is about. Um, and so they really need to be educated that sex is about communication with your partner of asking what they like of being open and exploring, of knowing that it's a give and take, that you both get to have pleasure, that her pleasure is just as important as your pleasure, right? That's the conversation that we need to be having with our boys. And we need to tell them to go slow, right? And that what they're seeing on TV and they're seeing um, in porn is not what sex is about. That is not how people really have sex. It's not real. That there is a piece around connection and that there's a piece around intimacy with a partner of, you know, connecting with them emotionally. Women need that, right? Most women, in order to really open up sexually, need to feel emotionally connected um, to their partner. So I also think there's another piece to that, the other side of the emotional connection and the intimacy. I think there's something else. I think that men need or to know about fem- to uh, to have an understanding of female anatomy i think that's lacking i mean just basic facts yeah. about female anatomy about how their bodies work about how women's bodies work i think that's a real yeah. that's a missing piece um and that's huge yeah and it's it seems like it would be somewhat simple particularly today maybe you can go on i, I would you can probably can go online and you know how to uh, you can do how to for everything so that just simply looking at the female anatomy and how it works and then you incorporate that with your knowledge into the relationship that you're talking about because that's not going to work unless you really understand the female body I, I don't think anyway yeah 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 no I think you're, you're absolutely right about that um, yeah I teach a class for men on how to be great lovers and we do spend a fair amount of time on understanding female anatomy but you know teaching female anatomy to young men right uh, in the context of pleasure 
is really important. And, you know, and it's true, like women's female, women's anatomy is very different than men's anatomy. Um, and they do need to understand, you know, all the different parts of the anatomy and also like how they need to be touched um, and how they need to be pleasured. And yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. And unfortunately, there's so little sex education right now um, in our in our education system and most parents are not really very well equipped because some of them don't even know the anatomy themselves that well uh, to be able to teach anatomy as well. So yes, in my ideal world, like every, 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 you know, uh, middle school student and, and high uh, middle school student, a uh, boy and girl would have like a really great course on anatomy and pleasure in addition to STDs and all, you know, all and pregnancy pr- prevention, etc., but that there is another piece around that. Actually, there's uh, that happens in the Netherlands. I was just reading. I'm not sure if it was if it's Norway or Denmark where they actually have these amazing sex education classes. Um, in, in, I think it's in middle school that it starts and maybe even some in elementary school that also incorporates like pleasure, right? So they have a completely different, uh, they have a completely different perspective on how we educate our children around yeah, sexuality. Completely different. And I want to add to that. We only have a few, couple of minutes left, but there's so much to talk about. We have, everybody has to just read your book, but, uh, they have a completely different attitude. I have a friend whose daughter, uh, was a, uh, exchange, was a, not an exchange, she was a student in, uh, in Denmark and did a paper on, uh, birth control, I think it was. And when they sell, in selling their birth control, uh, prophylactics for men, um, the marketing piece is about sensuality, intimacy, pleasure, um, you know, warmth, connection. Whereas our the names of particularly our our uh, prophylactics are Trojan and you know words that are very aggressive. Uh, just naming the products is very different than the product than the products that they the names that they use for their products for birth control, which really yeah, reflects the culture's attitude towards sexuality yeah. and intimacy. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yes, so, yes, yeah. yes. That is that is absolutely true. That's. Well, that's how we teach men. You know, sex is about overcoming. Sex is about power. Um, sex is about sustaining, but it's not necessarily about intimacy and connection and pleasure. I have to have you back because we didn't even get to to a lot of topics, <laughs> particularly the one that's happening right now with Dr. Ford and the uh, nomination for the Supreme Court. That's a whole other topic, but um, it has been a real it has been a pleasure talking to you today. And uh, Janae Paylet, her, her book, the title of her book is Living an Orgasmic Life, Heal Yourself and Awaken Your Pleasure. And uh, you can buy it online, bookstores everywhere, I assume. And uh, give mm-hmm. us a website that we Amazon, can go to for more information. Yes, Amazon. You can go to my website, which is powerofpleasure.com, and you can, you can purchase it there as well. Great. Thanks so much, Janae. Thank you, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.